Hello, this is Shonda Smith-Baker from the Minneapolis Foundation, where I am the Senior Vice President of Impact and the host of Conversations with Shonda. For Valerie to take the time was such modeling of how even in your busiest moments, you make time to support others. The event at Moderwell was an event by women for women. And then in the midst of it, she found time to be part of this conversation. Her comments were great. And I felt warm and, and quite respected and, and re, you know, affirmed or, you know, all of those great things. But I think more importantly is that I'm picking up with how I want to continue to be in my work and that the importance of the little things matter, that you can't just pay attention to what's on your calendar, but sometimes it's what ends between it that ends up being the most impactful. So I just wanted to share with you. So number one, I just launched this podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm at the Minneapolis Foundation mm -hmm. um, and I'm the Senior VP of Impact. I've been in philanthropy about a year and a half. And so I'm discovering my voice Good. Um, in this role. And um, I'm just really excited to talk with you. I've seen you talk several times. Um, there's so much I appreciate about your leadership and um, what I sense is humility and your ability to relate that I hope that I can uh, demonstrate in my own leadership. So it's quite what an honor. What a nice thing to say. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And for the audience, would you mind um, just introducing yourself? My name is Valerie Jarrett. I'm from Chicago, although I still kind of live in Washington. And I'm in the process of figuring out what to do with my voice now. Hmm. Really interesting. So you have a new book out. I do. Finding My Voice. How did you come up with that title? Well, the, the book is about my story, uh, my journey, uh, how I went from a painfully shy youngster to uh, a woman who became an advocate for others and for myself, particularly for those who didn't have the power to advocate for themselves. And what... Um, and the obstacles that I encountered along the way and the barriers that I had to break through and the, the highs and the lows of both my professional and my personal life. And over the course of that time, I discovered to trust the most important voice, and that's the one inside of each of us, and to try to use it to be a force for good. Hmm. And so finding that voice is what my life's journey has really been all about. In your book, you talk about your dad's um, story too, which is obviously completely connected to yours. And um, the title, I believe, of chapter one is The Gift of Freedom. Yes. And there's something just about like that title that is so significant um, and really sharing a bit about um, his challenges perhaps that he faced as a as an african-american mm -hmm. physician and then going international and not facing some of the same assumptions not having to deal with the jim crow laws and and the inability to kind of break into the medical field how do you think that that experience has informed your work well i think <clears throat> the experience was very my early years were very valuable in that my my dad did leave the United States because he couldn't find a job equivalent to his white counterparts. And he and my mom were adventuresome spirits. And so they thought, well, if there's not an opportunity for us here, let us go somewhere else. And by going halfway across the world to Iran, where he was offered, 
the opportunity to start a new hospital and chair the Department of Pathology there. In a sense, I was born over that color barrier that had been so oppressive for both of my parents growing up under Jim Crow. And so at the time when I was going to an international school with kids from all over the world, Ruby Bridges was integrating her school in New Orleans. Uh, and so because those first five years of my life, I didn't feel the um, enormous burdens of discrimination and racism that my parents had felt. Uh, I was, they kind of brought me over the color barrier. And so it was a culture shock when I returned to the United States and discovered you know, that racism and discrimination was still alive and well. And that as a light-skinned African-American, I was experiencing that from my own community. And my mom had said, I want you to go to the United States because I want you to know what it's like to be an African-American. And at that point, we probably said Negro. And then I was like, wait a minute, I'm getting beat up by those kids. Mm -hmm. And so it was really kind of me trying to figure out, well, how do I fit in this new world when race had never been an issue for the beginning of my life? And so uh, it took a minute for me to kind of figure it out and, and find my my place and become a part of a community that began with my family, an African-American family that had been very successful in Chicago and had always worked hard and had broken all kinds of color barriers. And that became kind of my true north, but also became like, well, how am I ever going to live up to those mm -hmm. enormous expectations that um, were set by people who came before me because of their accomplishments? Yeah. I you say, um, you talk about feeling like you can't live up to those expectations and then feeling like you can do everything. Yes. Like that's schizophrenic. <laughs> that's a, that's yes. a quite of a, a yes. tension. Depending on the day. Yeah. Sometimes in the same day, it's like, oh, I can do anything. I was like, oh, how can I do anything? Mm -hmm. And how has that impacted, you know, because it made me think of lean in, the imposter syndrome, like all of those things that exist um, for us as women and for African-American yes. women. And They're all um, very real. And I think part of what I try to do is just talk about them through my story, mm -hmm. as opposed to labeling them necessarily, just say, like, this, this is what I experienced. And, and, and I had to overcome the shyness, and I had to figure out how to fit in. And, I, and some of it I did in ways that I wouldn't do today. So, for example, I never talked about being born in Iran, and I had a British accent, which I lost the first time I got teased. And... And I didn't share my story as a youngster. I was kind of ashamed of being different. And now I realize that part of who I am is because of that early part of my story. And so I try to encourage other people to be open about their stories. And I thought if I wrote a book that was really candid about both my professional and personal life and just put it all out there, that it would humanize me in a way that people would be, be more inclined to see their story in my story. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to just see not the finished project because it's project, still a work in progress, yeah. but I don't want them to see me today and assume I was always this person. Yeah. We all evolve. And and is it something that you still struggle with, but you just have better tools to overcome it? No, or? I'm not shy at all anymore. I'm no? over it. I'm over it. But it took decades. It was not easy. No, I'm just not shy. Was it just it's jumping funny. in and doing it? and Just, just over just and over and over again. And affirmation? I, and Yes, you get positive reinforcement and... I mean, I didn't used to be funny. I've been pretty funny now. <laughs> and I think it's it's practice. And mm -hmm. I can't even tell you when it became fun. But I know I went from this, you know, not in my stomach and, and painful mm -hmm. feeling anytime I had to speak in front of more than five people to, I can't wait to go back and talk to this audience again. Mm -hmm. And I think some of it 
some of it it's easier now because there are no like political stakes. I can say whatever I want to say. I'm not having to be as measured and as careful as when I was in the White House. And, and it would reflect not just on me, but the president of the United States. So I'm free. I'm kind of like totally unshackled right now. Yeah. Uh, and it's great. I'm enjoying mm-hmm. it. Well, we have a similar story. I often tell a story about um, me failing a speech class mm-hmm. because my anxiety was so much. And now I'm just amazed um, at myself when I can get up see? in front of people and have conversations. But see, now you tell me that and I feel this affinity to you because I couldn't yeah. have even taken a speech class. Yeah. I would have been too shy to do that. And I, I, I was at an event um, a few weeks ago and a guy who I've known forever and I know his kids, he came up to me I haven't seen one of his son in a while. And he said, my son is painfully shy. Would you write a note in the book that will help him realize that you were shy too? Hmm. And you realize everybody's dealing with these normal anxieties. And I thought I was superhuman in those early years. And Mm -hmm. I could handle everything myself. And no, we all need help. We're all vulnerable. We all, you know, Hmm. fall and stumble and that failure can't define you it should strengthen you and you learn from it and you get back up and i think the resilience is one thing i'm actually a little worried about with this younger generation because yeah, i was going to ask that you know what they call them the snowplow parents that are and the programming them to death so that they don't have a free moment to just play mm-hmm. and and pretend and experiment and see that they can actually work things out on their own. We don't have to intervene on everything mm-hmm. and get them off social media so that they can actually experience each other and not talk at each other through the behind the veil of anonymity, but actually mm-hmm. look into somebody's eyes and, and sense them as a human being. So I'm a little worried and you're hearing that depression is up among high school and college yep. age Suicides kids. And are I, think, up. Mm-hmm. I think all of this is contributory. And so mm-hmm. figuring out a way to write a book that would be human and honest was like my contribution. Do you think that the way that um, young people are experiencing leadership is different than how they experienced it um, when you were growing up? Like, do you think that there's more acceptance or understanding that it's imperfect, like you can be imperfect and still be a leader? Or do you think that there's a different level of demand around leadership that didn't exist? That's an interesting question. I guess it's a mixed bag. So. Like, um, I do think we tend to put leaders on pedestals, but it's easier to command an audience today because everybody has a phone, right? Mm. And you know, they've got these kids who are influencers. Well, yeah, they haven't actually done anything, but yeah. they've turned themselves into influencers. LeBron James, thirteen-year-old son, got a million followers in twenty-four hours. He's thirteen years old. I mean, amazing influencer at thirteen. But and you wonder what what he be influenced by thirteen years. I don't know, but it, I, he's an influence. Question. I know that's dangerous yes, in some I ways. I think it's a lot of power in the hands of the young people mm-hmm. and, and pressure, so, perhaps and enormous pressure to continue. Well, if you got a million in the first day, what are you going to do the next day? What are you going to do the next day? And they're checking and they're comparing themselves. I'm not talking about his son. I'm saying more generally mm-hmm. to people's projections of their best self that they put out there. Nobody puts their bad stuff up on social media. You pretend you're perfect. And then people go, well, why can't I have that? And why I don't measure up? And then it feeds these kind of deep-seated insecurities that I worry about. Um, So to me, mental health is tied with being honest in relationships and having people around you who 
who are supportive of you and nurturing of you. And I don't get that from my device, quite frankly. Gotcha. When, um, where, I just lost my question. Don't you hate that? Uh -huh. I do. And it was really good. It was super good. Um, so, uh, oh, identifying talent is where it was going to go. So, I, you know, I've heard you speak before and I know um, kind of the story of, of you and Michelle Obama. But I think beyond that, I think because of that story, for me, I've made some assumptions and I think it illustrates perhaps um, your ability to identify and nurture and support people in leadership. Can you talk about um, kind of managing teams? You know, mm -hmm. some of the audience are maybe new to identifying talent or maybe they see talent one particular way and um, perhaps they're not always open to someone just walking in your office. Well, so I think I have a pretty good eye for talent. And part of it is I listen and I try to see whether, um, what motivates people? And I listen to their stories. And I think you can tell a lot about a person by their story. And Michelle Robinson told me her story and it was a very compelling story of why she was interested in public service. And it had nothing to do with Princeton undergrad and Harvard Law School and everything to do with growing up from a working class family on the south side of Chicago. And a father who, with a disability, had committed himself to service and uh, she loved Chicago and wanted to give back. I found that a compelling story. And I think part of what we have to do is to figure out how we help support people to take it to the next phase. Not to say, okay, you're a young person, I think you should be president one day. Just like, okay, well, what can you do well, incrementally? Mm -hmm. How can we help one another progress throughout life, yeah. life's path, in whatever direction it takes you? And I'm not big any longer on like a 10-year plan. I had a stupid 10-year plan in my <laughs> life. But I am about increasing the aperture of opportunity for myself mm -hmm. and for those people who I care a lot about. And so identifying talent, I think, and nurturing it are kind of related, which is building relationships with one another, mm -hmm. and investing and caring about the other person mm -hmm. and and being a, an honest sounding board so they can come to you and say, well, I'm thinking about this or I'm thinking about that. What do you think? And when you share the same values and, you, and your same commitment to service, for example, mm -hmm. It's easier to do that. Yeah. We're seeing lots of signs of, of people that are struggling with telling truth to power. Mm -hmm. And it's happening at yeah. the most visible levels, but it's happening in our workplaces mm -hmm. where people get enamored or there's not the trust that's built or a, a number of barriers, perhaps. I mean, do you think it's eroding our institutions and our... I think our, I'm worried about our institutions. And again, it's back to young people. They're not, they're not affiliating in the in the way that my generation did. Some of my affiliation was geographic, the community I grew up in. I knew the people that owned the local grocery store and the dry cleaner and the teachers in our schools lived in the community. Um, I had a big family, extended family, they all lived in the area. Now our community is self-defined in this device again. And I worry that we are living in echo chambers, safe, uncomfortable and that the adventure of life and the enrichment of decisions back to your earlier question about building a team a healthy team is appreciating diversity as a strength and that's not just 
diversity of race and religion and gender, but it's a diversity of perspectives. And we shouldn't be scared about yeah. that. We should embrace it. I want somebody who disagrees with me to come and let's go at it and disagree without being disagreeable. Mm-hmm. And I am, I am worried that we're losing that fabric and that people are not defining themselves in terms of the institutions to which they're affiliated. In fact, to some degree, they're shunning institutions yeah. completely, whether it's government or business or religion. Mm-hmm. And they're just like going it alone. Yeah. And they're going to build their own institution, which is really not an institution. Mm-hmm. But our democracy relies on institutions, government being the principal one. But but. It's not government in isolation, it's government interacting with we the people. And if we don't feel that affiliation, then we don't vote, which is why 43% of the country didn't vote in the last election, mm. or last presidential election. So uh, last That's question. Troubling. Yeah, it is very troubling. Um, since I'm in philanthropy now, um, I'm wondering if you see a role for philanthropy in this um, either Absolutely. creating space for people to come together yes, or addressing the, issues? Absolutely, you all have the purse strings. And when you invite people to come to the table, they show up. And I think um, inviting people to the table who have different opinions and using your good offices to say, yes, we're gonna have a conversation, let's say around gun violence. And we're gonna invite people who feel that, you know, taking a gun away from them is like a fate worse than death. And we're gonna invite people who lost their children to gun violence and we're gonna let's have a conversation and let's see if we can find some common ground i don't think there's enough effort today to find common ground or even to compromise and to recognize that in a big complicated country such as ours it's not my way or the highway it's 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 better understanding of the truth it's better appreciation for how we should feel invested in one another and not just in ourselves Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm worried that because of technology and because of this frustration with government and with business, people are not as loyal to their employers and the employers aren't as loyal to their workers. And, and all of that can fester, I think, in a really unhealthy way. And so yeah. the question is, what do we all do to bring ourselves together and, and feel this um, kinship even when we're different? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting that um, people see philanthropy as money and what you're saying is basically use our power influence our cachet yes to basically bring people together Convening to expand power. the way of of um thinking and their connections to each other if you invite people they'll show up and once you get them at the table then i think their nature will be to be curious it's just getting them to the table and so you can be conveners and you can do it around any substantive area you want, or you could just convene people and say, look, we're gonna have an interesting conversation and get people to use that muscle of, of listening to one another and actually hearing one another. And so I think philanthropy is an institution that is still well-respected by many and that can influence long, way beyond just the first strings. Perfect. Thank you so much for you're your welcome. time. You're welcome. I hope you're enjoying our city. I love your city. Go down. And I'm loving your book. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Yes. Good to meet you all. Thank you, guys. Thank Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Please check out the Minneapolis Foundation website to find more episodes of this podcast, information on upcoming events, and for my book recommendations. Thank you to Weber Shandwick for their partnership and support in making this podcast come alive.